Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Recently I got to spend uh, one entire night at, at a lovely historic hotel. Yeah. And you know where that was? I do because you brought me back a postcard. I did. We're <laughs> going to talk about that postcard today. Uh, it's called the Grove Park Inn, and it celebrated its 100th birthday on July 12th of this year, which is 2013. And like any grand hotel, uh, it has quite a history. And this is kind of an uh, across-the-board weird one in terms of all the things that it pulls in. Uh, because there's real med- medicine, there's there's patent medicine, there are famous writers and inventors, several wars, even a ghost story, and... Uh, I. I cannot count the number of other podcast episodes in our archive that in some way tie into the history of the Grove Park Inn. Yeah, and I was actually surprised at how many people know about it. I know this may just be ignorant on my part. Like, I know about it because it's in the South and, uh, you know, friends, it's close enough distance that I have friends and mm-hmm. it's like that's a fancy getaway they've done. Right. But when I posted a picture of the postcard that you sent me because it made me laugh and was hilarious, like friends from all over are like, oh, is that from the Grove Park Inn? I love that place. I'm like, how do you even know about <laughs> yeah. it? But if, uh, many, many more people did than I would have anticipated. Yeah. And, and, Full disclosure, I did work there briefly for some time ago. It is also situated in my favorite place in the world, which is Asheville, North Carolina. So we're going to talk today about its history, uh, all of the weird engineering marvels that went into building it, and how strangely, like today, the Grove Parking is this luxury resort and spa with a, a golf course and this big sports complex and uh, all kinds of fancy amenities. They're just amenities. It really is when I Everywhere. said that people plan it as their like fancy getaway. Yeah, like people will do it for like an anniversary or sometimes even a honeymoon or just you know, yeah, one of those. We need to treat ourselves to luxury, right? And That's I had they go. I had a gift card from when my brother and sister in law got married that like helped us pay. Yeah, <laughs> the one night that we spent there, um, it was definitely fancy. And, but and all of that fanciness started in a weird. It started in a kind of a weird way. <laughs> Um, because we would not have the Grove Park Inn if there were not two serious diseases in the world, which are malaria and tuberculosis. That is not for any humanitarian reason, but we're going to get into that. Yeah. Uh, why we have malaria and tuberculosis to thank for the existence of the Grove Park Inn. This luxury area. Uh, so the Grove Park Inn is named after... E.W. Grove. Who is the man whose money helped build the Grove Park Inn and whose name it carries. Uh, and he was born on December 23rd of 1850. And he uh, was born in a town roughly 60 miles outside the city of Memphis. And he grew up on a farm. He moved to Arkansas for a while. And then eventually he moved back to Tennessee uh, and took on an apprenticeship at a pharmacy in the town of Paris, Tennessee, which he eventually bought, and he ended up running it himself. Right, and he wanted to distinguish himself from all the other pharmacists in the world. And in the late 1800s, he started on a plan that he thought might do that, which was to make a tasteless version of quinine, and that's the medicine that was used to treat malaria. And is notoriously horrible tasting. It's I've never had to take quinine for any reason. Me either, but I have heard. That's one of those things older relatives like to tell you about how horrible it is if they've ever had to have it. 
so just a brief on malaria. It's a parasitic illness, and it can range from very mild infection to uh, causing fatality. And on the mild end of the spectrum, you know, it's uh, you would experience cycles of feeling cold, hot, sweaty, kind of like a fluey situation. Yeah, that's sort of the classic malaria presentation. But if it's not treated, it can cause respiratory complications, low blood pressure, clotting problems hypoglycemia, and all kinds of other effects. And as we said, it can be fatal. And at this point in history, malaria was a very real and huge problem in the American South because the land was swampier. There were consequently more mosquitoes. Right. I mean, we still deal with that during the summers. We do. We're just not in danger of Actually, I have a fear of getting malaria, even though it's no longer endemic in the South. Because most of the time when people get malaria in, like, the people still contract malaria in the United States every year. And they don't recognize it. They don't recognize it, but it's also usually what happens is someone has traveled to a place where malaria is prevalent. They've gotten malaria there, brought it back with them, and then that's been uh, transmitted to somebody else by mosquitoes. So the reason that I have a fear of getting malaria is because we live in a city where there's a major international airport hub and lots of mosquitoes. And lots of mosquitoes. So that that's why I have that fear. So back then, <laughs> when there was a lot of, of malaria action happening in the American South, uh, if you got malaria, you pretty much had to take quinine forever to manage it. Uh, there was no other effective treatment for malaria. And what quinine did was it inhibited the parasites that cause malaria, and they would bring a person's fever down, but it didn't actually eradicate the disease. So if you stopped taking quinine and there were still malaria parasites in your body, they could multiply and the symptoms would come back. And of course, taking quinine forever uh, was terrible because, as we mentioned, it was made from the extremely bitter bark of the Andean uh, sacona tree and tasted horrible. Uh, people would mix it with lemon or lime or alcohol or almost anything else to try to make it more palatable because it was really awful to choke down. Right. And that's where tonic water comes from and the gin and tonic, neither of which are effective as a treatment <laughs> or prevention of malaria in any way. But, but that is why we have quinine and tonic water. So Grove wanted to come up with a better solution than having this just bitter tasting thing that you had to take for a long time. And his first attempt was this prescription drug named Eberlin, and that was quinine crystals that were suspended in a liquid. And this was relatively tasteless. It was harder to taste the quinine when it was suspended in this liquid, but you had to have a prescription to get it. So it was not something he could just go and mass market. Yeah. And then next came... So exciting. Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic, which built on that original formula by adding sugar, lemon flavor, and other ingredients. And it wasn't exactly tasteless, but it did taste better than straight quinine, and it could could be sold over the counter. And it was, and it did very well. It did extremely well, according to a particularly delightful advertisement, which is also the postcard I brought back (laughs) for, for Holly. Um, the, and it's this picture of a pig with a baby face. and it Like says, a, a human baby's head. It's a not, human baby's Not a cartoony <laughs> baby pig, but a no. human baby face. Uh, on a pig. And it says that the tonic, quote, makes children and adults as fat as pigs. So according to this advertisement, it sold one and a half million bottles in a year. It even claimed to outsell Coca-Cola, although we do not really have hard sales statistics from that era to go on with that claim. I love that postcard so much. It's it's kooky and weird. It's, it's just 
you can't look at it without giggling. I can't look at it without giggling. And it, it's like instant uh, mood lift. So Grove's Little Pharmacy was not nearly big enough to support this rapidly climbing popularity of the chill tonic. So he founded the Paris Medicine Company in 1887, and that company incorporated in 1889. And eventually, the increasing demand for this product drove him to move the entire business to St. Louis in 1891, uh, so he would have better access to manufacturing facilities. So thanks to improvements in mosquito control and flood control, malaria gradually started to wane. And this led to two things. And number one, since people didn't need chill tonic to treat or prevent malaria anymore, uh, it sort of became marketed as this cure-all. And the Paris Medicine Company started diversifying its company's products that had already started doing this. But it really kicked that into a higher gear uh, to put out more kinds of products than just chill tonic, some of which were similarly medically dubious. Like, chill tonic had an actual purpose, but then it became marketed as the sort of, it will revigorize your blood or something non-legitimate. Same thing with these other products. They weren't quite up to today's medical standards. Well, and as the need for chill tonic dropped off, the new flagship product for the company became Grove's Laxative Bromoquinine, which was a tablet that was billed as the original one-day cold cure. It contained acetanilide, which is an actual drug that the body will convert into acetaminophen. So it did have pharmacologically active ingredients, although acetanilide also has dangerous side effects. And the claim that the drug would cure colds by, quote, opening the bowels and actively killing cold germs was really pretty bogus. It was not founded in truth. Uh, and you can see these products and their packaging and advertisements because they are on display at the Grove Park Inn even today. They're part kind of their of- historical display. I had kind of forgotten that whole aspect of it until we (laughs) wandered around this corner and found the display case of, like, wacky, clearly not legitimate uh, medical products. Yeah. So this pharmaceutical venture is how Grove met Fred Loring Seeley, who would later be instrumental in building the Grove Park Inn. Seeley worked for pharmaceutical company Park Davis, and that's the company that Grove had turned to when he was trying to perfect his cold tablets. Seeley also became Grove's son-in-law when he married Evelyn Grove, who was E.W. Grove's daughter. And Grove's pharmaceuticals made him an extremely wealthy man. But his life had its share of hardships. It was not all easygoing. Uh, his first wife died in 1884, and three of the four children they had had together died in infancy. And his daughter, Evelyn, was the only one that survived. He did remarry, and he had two more children, one of whom died of diphtheria when she was very, very young. Yeah. He also worked really hard to make this fortune. He, he worked himself into exhaustion, and he developed chronic bron- bronchitis. And that prompted his doctors to tell him to spend some of each year recovering his health in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, And at one point they told him that he just needed to stay in Asheville until further notice. And so at this point, Seeley took over running a lot of the pharmaceutical business and Grove, while he was recovering, started buying lots of property in Asheville. As his health got better, he started developing real estate in Asheville and in Atlanta. And so the Grove Park Inn is one of the many, many properties in Asheville and Atlanta that Seeley or Grove or both of them had a hand in developing. 
And so that is the malaria element of how his fortune was made and leading up to the Grove Park Inn. We are now moving into the uh, tuberculosis portion of the podcast. We talk about tuberculosis a lot on this podcast. Lately, it really has come up over and over, even when we select topics that we think are in no way related to tuberculosis. It will just pop up in the research somewhere. Uh, But this one is really, there's a lot of tuberculosis uh, elements to talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, So during this era, Asheville was struggling with whether it should be a tourist destination or more of a health destination for people recovering from illnesses. And either could have been lucrative for the city. And it was really uh, easily suited to cover both of those bases. It's in a beautiful part of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it has relatively mild winters thanks to being surrounded by all those mountains. It's kind of a bowl. Yeah, it kind of closes it off from some of the harsher weather that could move in. Yeah, a lot of the snow and stuff kind of goes around instead of hitting Asheville directly. So in particular, areas like Asheville were increasingly home to tuberculosis sanatoriums. So in those years, before the discovery of streptomycin, the treatment for tuberculosis was really centered on rest and nutritious food and breathing some kind of air that people thought was wholesome in some way. And mountain air was on the, like the good air list of the good types of air that maybe would help you fight off tuberculosis. And so this part of North Carolina had already become home to tuberculosis sanatoriums. And recovery in one of these sanatoriums took a really long time. Sometimes people would stay there for months and months. Uh, my grandmother actually stayed at one in Black Mountain, North Carolina, which is a little bit east of Asheville, when she was a child. But bringing in sanatoriums had the potential to also drive away residents who were fearful for their own health. Having a bunch of people with tuberculosis move in could be a little unsettling for somebody that was hale and hearty and did not really want to risk exposure. Yeah, especially since the only treatment, which was like a lot of people died of tuberculosis. Yeah. The only treatment was like this months long stay being, you know, cared for and and resting and eating uh wholesome food, like it could really take months and months, up to a year sometimes. Yeah. And so this fear of the residents was uh, part of why Grove bought 408 acres of land, including part of the western slope of Sunset Mountain in 1909. And it was both an investment in land and a protection of the value of the other property that he already owned. He bought it in part so that no one would buy it and build a sanatorium there. Uh, he said so in a letter to Celie about two months after the sale was completed. No, we are not speculating on that motive. You straight up said, I don't want anybody to build a sanatorium here. Later on, he also had the ha- habit of buying tuberculosis sanatoriums when they went up for sale and tearing them down uh, or when he uh, had property of his own to sell, he would put this no sanatoriums clause in the sales documentation. He was really not in favor. Yeah, he was systematically trying to rid Asheville of the tuberculosis sanatoriums Yeah, by using his 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 clout as a real estate Mm -hmm. uh, purchaser and holder. Yeah. So now let's get back to when E.W. Grove finally decided to put a hotel on this giant tract of land he had bought. Yeah. He wasn't uh, really on top of that idea. uh, He didn't jump on the thought of building an inn there right away. Uh, And in fact, the first time an investor came to him with that idea, he turned them down. But by 1911, he had started to envision this beautiful hotel on the slope of the mountain that he had bought. And he and Seeley had gone their separate ways for a little while after an apparent disagreement over how to run Paris Pharmaceuticals. This is a recurring theme in their relationship. They had lots of disagreements on how to run things. 
In the meantime, Seeley had gone to Atlanta to start a newspaper that was called the Atlanta Georgian. But by 1911, Seeley was back in Asheville shopping around for an architect for the inn. And working from photos of the similarly rustic Old Faithful Inn in Yellowstone as an inspiration, uh, a number of architects and designers submitted proposals for the hotel. But Grove was not really happy with any of them. Uh, Henry Ives Cobb of New York did submit a plan that looked somewhat like what the Grove Park Inn ultimately ended up looking like, uh, using rough gray boulders and a red roof. And in the end, it was Seeley himself and not an architect who designed what the hotel would look like. He came up with a sketch that Grove liked, and in turn, Grove put him in charge of the project, working with Cobb, and gave him a salary and 13 acres of land to build a home on. And they selected a site on the slope of the mountain. It was one that had a great view, but it was off the ridge, so it would uh, be less affected by snow than other positions. And it was also near the Asheville Country Club, which already had its own golf course. So they were hoping that guests would be able to use that as well, like that they could work out a partnership deal. Yeah. So we already mentioned that Seeley and Grove often did not work well together. Seeley and Cobb did not work well together either. And ultimately, Cobb was dismissed from the project. And this left Seeley free to work directly with J.W. McKibben, who was an architectural engineer, and construction supervisor John Oscar Mills, who Grove had worked with previously on some developments in Atlanta. And they broke ground on July 9th, 1912, with the plan of opening the following July 1st, which almost happened. That's a tight build schedule. It's an extremely, especially considering the scope of what they were doing and the technology available at the time. And building on the slope of a mountain. Building on the slope of a mountain. (laughs) where weather happens, even though it is relatively mild. Yeah, it's not a lot of time to try to build a whole hotel. Yeah, considering when it was built, uh, that hotel and its construction was really an engineering feat. The only typical thing about it was the excavation. Uh, they used a steam shovel, although they were only able to use one. Yep, one steam shovel did the whole excavation. To dig out a hole. The exterior was built with local granite stones from surrounding mountains, and some of them weighed many, many tons individually, and these were hauled to the site, primarily using mules and wagons. A lot of these wagons actually came from Asheville's T.S. Morrison and Company, which ran from 1891 to 2006. I was very sad when it closed down. Yeah, very recent. It had gone from being the kind of place where, you know, the local farmers and 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 people would buy all their general supplies mm-hmm. to the sort of touristy kind of place that uh, sells nostalgia uh-huh. in the form of, like, wind-up tin toys and stuff. And then it just wasn't sustaining, I guess. Well, yeah, there were changes to yeah. downtown. It didn't it didn't survive anymore, and they I think the owners were ready to retire. But back to this construction project. So they had to get these rocks up to the site, and to do it, about 14 wagons would be connected together to form a train, and a Packard truck then towed them up the mountain. And this sounds really primitive, but it was actually pretty effective. It could move 40 tons of rock with each load. And it was an impressive enough engineering feat that it was actually featured in national publications at the time. So they were able to leverage power, the yes. power of the truck and use the load bearing of the wagons in a way that was kind of made u- it doable, unique and really, uh, in the end, enabled the construction of the facility. Yeah. Italian stonemasons cut and shaped the stones to fit together, but they lift, they left all of the visible faces of the stones natural. So when you look at the, uh, the walls that are made of these stones, they have a very rough hewn look. 
They look like boulders just stacked up together to make a hotel. But in fact, on the backside, they're cut to fit. Yeah, that's cool. On the inside, they fit together so that the hair doesn't <laughs> come in. About 400 men did the work of fitting those stones together and doing all the interior work. Some of the workers were local, but Mills also brought some of them with him from Atlanta. And those sort of displaced workers that were there from Atlanta were housed in a circus tent, just kind of another weird and wonderful factoid about Grove right. Park. The roofs, there were five different roofs that it, it took to cover the whole inn. Uh, and they were made to be fireproof. At this point in history, hotel fires were a huge problem in terms of both monetary cost and the cost to human life. Uh, often fires in hotels were huge and, and had a lot of fatalities. Plus, thanks to its location up on the side of this mountain and the lack of today's firefighting equipment, if the Grove Park Inn had caught fire early in its history, it probably would have been a total loss. There wouldn't have been much they could do about it. So their whole goal was to make it so that it would be as fire-resistant as possible. So they made these five roofs to cover all the parts of the hotel with a solid layer of concrete that was poured over forms and supports. And the pour went on continually, 24 hours a day, until they were done. So there wouldn't be any seams for water to leak through. It's kind of ingenious. Yeah. But also seems like the hard way. Like, <laughs> like there's part of me, and, and I know, you know, only nominal amounts about construction, but there's part of me, it's like, couldn't they have figured out an easier way? But I don't know. Uh, once all that concrete cured, though, the whole thing was sealed. And then they uh, put a layer of timbers and roofing felt uh, and then the distinctive red tile roof topped it all off. Yeah. And that meant there was, there, while this was this layer of wood, it was like green timbers that wouldn't burn as well. And there was this huge layer of concrete between them and other wood. Like a firewall. Yeah. So another unique bit of the way the hotel was constructed is that the elevators in the historic part of the inn are built inside the fireplaces. Uh, purportedly, this was to shield guests from the noise. So they're not in the fire part of the fireplaces. (laughs) They're kind of behind that part in the huge stone walls of the fireplaces. Uh, So when you want to take the elevator, you go and stand in this little alcove that is uh, adjacent to the fireplace. And this strange historic elevator comes and takes you up to your room. That's very fascinating. I haven't been, so I'm trying to picture it. It's hard to picture, and it's hard enough to picture even if you were staying there. Like, (laughs) Like we would be waiting. How do I get in? Do I walk through the fire? <laughs> yeah, the, we would be waiting for the elevator, and people would come and be like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> We're waiting for We're the waiting fire people. For the fire elevator that is inside the fireplace. The fireplaces are enormous and beautiful. There's room. <laughs> you could walk right in. You could. Yeah. Uh, much of the furnishings and the fixtures there came from Roycroft Community, which is an arts and crafts community in New York. And the arts and crafts movement started in England in the Victorian era, in part as a response to the Industrial Revolution, uh, and it drew heavily from the writings of John Ruskin and William Morris. And it combined workmanship and handcrafting with this thread of anti-industrial sentiment. There wasn't one set type of design to it, uh, but there was a lot of emphasis on simplicity, on skill, and on quality. Uh, and as a testament to how those ideals have held up, there are many of the original Roycroft pieces and other arts and crafts antiques still in use at the Grove Park Inn. So they have lasted more than 100 years. Uh, and in the U.S., uh, the arts and crafts movement is also called the mission style. So if you hear someone refer to mission style stuff, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. About. 
Uh, as a side note to our podcast archives, the Chicago Arts and Crafts Society started at Hull House. So if you listen to the Jane Addams episode, it's all tied together. Yep. So the Great Hall, which is basically the lobby of the hotel, uh, had a rough-hewn local granite interior that matched the exterior of the building with huge support pillars in the center and then immense fireplaces on either end. Uh, and there are quotes from famous authors and philosophers inscribed in various stones around the hall. And as Tracy hinted at earlier, they did not quite make their July 1st deadline for opening. The opening banquet was actually held on July 12th of 1913, with about 400 guests, including then-Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan, who included in his address the quote, Today we stand in this wonderful hotel, not built for a few, but for the multitudes that will come and go. I congratulate these men. They have built for the ages. I think it's a lovely sentiment. It is. And on that note, how about we take a second and talk about our sponsor, Lumosity.com. I think that sounds like a grand idea. You know what Lumosity.com did this morning to me? Did it make you feel slow and old? Uh, It does that sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes it does to me too. But also lots of giggles usually. Yeah, I've improved a lot since the last time we talked about Lumosity.com in this podcast. This time it gave me uh, the, the exercise I love and hate which is the one with the adorable penguins that have to go through a maze, <laughs> but the maze keeps turning and your controls turn at the same time. I yeah. had a hard time with that one. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, so this is how I've been spending some time exercising my brain. You and I both exercise our bodies. Yeah. So Lumosity exercises your brain, too. And since you can set up your own system of what areas of your brain you want to focus on in terms of types of skills that your brain can do, it's kind of like having a personal trainer for your brain. Yeah, you can really focus on whatever you are, uh, you feel you're lacking in, whether it's memory recall or, um, your attention. Yeah, or being able to solve problems quickly and creatively. You, you can kind of focus on any one or multiples of those. Right. It's based on the idea of neuroplasticity, which is this idea that your brain continues to build skills and shape itself even as you get older. And it gives you customized workouts online. And so they are like exercises, but they are also fun like games, which is why there are adorable penguins that are trying to get to a little fish at the end of a maze. And it doesn't take very long. It's just a couple minutes a day. Yep. And you will notice improvement in uh, <laughs> the way your brain handles these tasks. Yes. You, you can track. There's a, a, a brain performance index where you can track your score and see how well you're doing and how your skills are building up in various aspects of how... Uh, you think and solve problems. I've been using it, we've mentioned before, in my useless meeting time. <laughs> that is between two meetings. It's about 10 minutes long. It does not usually take any longer than that. Uh, and wow, do I feel less deficient in brain power when I look at my skills now versus yeah. last time, a few weeks ago, that we talked about it. Mine are edging up slowly. Yeah. <laughs> I've made great strides in my memory. Woo! Go to Lumosity.com today. Click the Start Training button to create your own program and then start playing your first game. That's Lumosity.com and tell them you heard it on How Stuff Works. And now we will get back to what happened at the end once it opened. Yeah. So things went pretty well for the Grove Park Inn's first year. It looked like the hotel was going to be a huge success. But then reality intervened, and on June 28, 1914, Archduke Ferdinand of Austria was assassinated, and World War I soon followed. In the end, the war years were really financially precarious for the Grove Park Inn. That is not surprising in any way. 
It did manage to stay open, although it was not always profitable during that time. But after World War I ended, the Grove Park Inn became a popular destination for the well-off, and many of its guests were there for lengthy stays of rejuvenation and relaxation. So that mountain air was considered healthy for many reasons, right. not just to cure a, d- a specific disease, but it was generally, you know considered a healthful place to spend some time. Yeah, Asheville still has that reputation. Yeah. And after ongoing disputes with Grove, Seeley uh, leased the hotel from him and took over its management and established it as a place where businessmen, businessmen and perhaps their wives, but preferably not their children, could come to rest and recuperate from the strain of their lives. They kept it meticulously, meticulously clean. There was a lot of effort put into keeping the place absolutely spotless. Uh, and they also served what they considered to be wholesome food, but it was also clearly not for sick people. <laughs> there was a lot of focus in those earlier years about how this was about a place to come and, you know, refresh yourself if you've been having some chronic insomnia or you're stressed out all the time. But it was not intended for sick people, which they, they, that was clearly stated often. It, they did not want that association. No. Yeah. Um, At the same time, though, for the first few years of its operation, people would check into their room and find a bottle of Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic and a shot glass on the bedside table of each room. Um, So, while it was not for sick people... Or little people, or no children... They wanted to keep it a quiet place for adults. To just relax. To relax. They were... They were making it a spa without their really calling it that yet. Yeah. The, one of the people who uh, was a visitor here, another another podcast connection, is John Harvey Kellogg. Oh, um, yeah. It did have some of the same elements as the Battle Creek uh, facility that John Harvey Kellogg was running, but with not nearly as heavy an emphasis on all of the various pseudo-medical treatments that John Harvey Kellogg had going on there. So the relationship between Seeley and Grove, we have mentioned, was always um, a little adversarial and headbutty, but it fell apart completely after more than 20 years when Grove basically wrote Seeley out of his will. And he even tied up Evelyn's own inheritance, that was his daughter who was married to Seeley, so that she couldn't leave any of her inheritance from Grove to Seeley if she died before her husband did. Grove's will also made it very clear that he wanted Seeley out of Grove Park. So after Seeley's lease on the hotel was up, he was just going to have to go. There would be no renewal. Yeah. As for what caused this rift, uh, I, I don't think there was any one thing. They were both extremely particular and extremely exact and very determined. So if each of them set their mind to something different, they didn't agree on what they had you know, set their minds on, they would really quickly start to just uh, go head to head over it. Plus, each of them seemed to be kind of jealous of the other's relationship with Evelyn. Sort of sad. Yeah. Uh, in 1927, Seeley's lease ended, and in that same year, E.W. Grove died. So Seeley ended his work at the Grove Park on the eve of the Great Depression, and he turned his attention to other businesses he'd started, including woodworking and textile manufacturing, uh, including Biltmore Industries. Yeah. So even though Grove's will had specified very clearly, that his Asheville holdings were not to be sold in whole or in part. Soon after all this happened, his son, who was E.W. Grove Jr., and the hotel's general manager, William Curran, decided eventually, not long after this happened, to sell it. They did find a buyer, but the inn fell on really hard times almost right away and wound up defaulting on both of its mortgages during the Great Depression. 
And the history of the Grove uh, varies a lot for the next couple of decades. For a few months during World War II, the inn was an internment facility, uh, and the first group of people interned there were diplomats from Hungary, Bulgaria, and Italy. And as these diplomats were released, they were then replaced with German and Japanese internees. So during this time, the only guests of the Grove Park there were people that were forced to be there. They were not right. They, there they to were, take the air. They were prisoners. Yeah. And when it when it was. Uh, more of a diplomatic facility. The security was a lot more lax than once it was a German and Japanese internees. Those generally were not diplomats. They were regular people who were being interned because of where they were from yeah, or where their families were from. So then beginning in October of 1942, the Grove Park started to house injured seamen from the U.S. Navy. This went on until the spring of 1943. And then in 1944, it became one of the distribution centers for United States soldiers returning from combat during World War II. So returning soldiers would get a furlough to go visit their homes and families, and then they'd spend up to 14 days in the distribution centers, getting physical exams, filling out paperwork, that kind of thing. And also in 1944, for around a month, uh, Philippine president in exile, Manuel L. Quezon, also temporarily ran the government from the Grove Park Inn. Right. After World War II, uh, once the, it was functioning as an inn again, rather than all of these other roles it had taken on during the war, the inn really started to show its age. It gradually fell into disrepair, and it went through a series of owners and managers until it was bought by an entrepreneur named Charles A. Sammons in 1955. Sammons invested in renovations and modernization, and it was a project so big that the hotel closed for the winter to get it all done. The... Goal of this was to, in quote, modernize. So many of the original furnishings and fixtures were altered or replaced, since at this point, arts and crafts decor and the whole look that it had been uh, put in, in in 1913 was really out of favor. So when the Grove Park reopened, it was as a seasonal resort that had a very 50s look and feel, and there was even a newly built motor lodge on the property. And Salmon's continued to add on to the facility and remodel it over the years. He bought the golf course from the Country Club of Asheville that they had specifically placed it in close proximity to back when they chose the lot. So then uh, without a, a golf course, the Country Club of Asheville then bought another golf course that had recently been put up for sale. And that all went down in 1978. After the death of his first wife, Charles Sammons later married a woman named Elaine, who had a lot of experience in hotel management. Uh, she had some ideas about what to do with the Grove Park Inn, and it was she who convinced her husband to really restore the hotel to its historic splendor and get rid of all the 50s-era motor lodge trappings that had been modernized into it. She also thought the hotel was going to need space for meetings and conferences to be able to stay competitive, but they would really have to put all of those elements in in a way that matched the rest of the historic hotel. And this massive multi-million dollar effort all started in 1978, and it essentially was ongoing throughout the 1980s. It involved demolition of previous additions that had grown dated, uh, a total renovation of the whole property, and construction of two new wings, the Salmons and the Vanderbilt Wings. Great pains were taken to modernize while still keeping the historic feel. So while the facilities were modern, the look of it was historic. Uh, and they even went right down to using period-appropriate color palettes in the historic rooms. So for the decor, Elaine Sammons bought an extensive collection of arts and crafts antiques. Yeah, some of the stuff that they still had and had in storage, she brought out, and then she also bought new stuff. 
that was really old stuff. When Charles Sammons died in 1988, his financial advisors really tried to convince his wife to sell the hotel. Uh, They had bought several hotels over the years, and they had gotten, you know, buyers for most of them, but they had held on to the Grove Park Inn. She refused, and what she wanted to do was to make it a world-class resort and spa. So she kept pouring more money into restoring and refurbishing the historic main inn. In 1991, the Palm Court and the historic main inn was restored to how it had looked in 1913. And this even included meticulously removing layers and layers of old paint and then using photographs of the original uh, area and comparing it to what they had unearthed so that they could replicate the stencil work that had been done in the original decor. Uh, the entire roof, including the concrete layer, was replaced in 1999 after leaking became a problem, and it was replaced with clay tile to look exactly like the original. Construction of a spa started in 1999, and it was built almost entirely underground so it wouldn't block the view from the hotel. The spa opened in 2001, and in 2002, the golf course was restored to its original design, which had been done by golf course designer Donald Ross. Elaine Sammons died in 2009, and there wasn't really anyone in the Sammons family who wanted to take up the hotel and its operations. Uh, she had clearly been very devoted to she it. She was extremely so devoted to it. So it would be hard to fill, find anybody to fill those yeah, shoes when, in. Yeah, when I was working there, uh, she was still living when hmm. I was working there, and when she would visit the hotel, we all had to be extra, extra. We had to be <laughs> on the ball all the time. We had to be exceptionally on the ball when yeah. Mrs. Sammons was on the property. Of course. Uh, so the property was purchased by KSL Resorts in 2012, and it is now the Omni Grove Park. Yeah, that is very recent. Yeah. So because this hotel has been around so long and has had just so much of a great history, there are many, many prominent guests who have visited there at some point in another. There are so many presidents and diplomats, famous entertainers like Harry Houdini, also the subject of a prior podcast, uh, and many prominent industrialists from uh, earlier eras of American history. William Howard Taft stayed for a time before his death in 1930 as he tried to recover from heart disease. Uh, both Franklin D. and Eleanor Roosevelt visited separately. And as part of a side note, Seeley and his wife Evelyn, who, as we said, was Grove's daughter, met Herbert Hoover and his wife Lou in China. And all four of them narrowly escaped the Boxer Rebellion. Adventures with Grove and Seeley. I know. <laughs> uh, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and Harvey Firestone were all fond of the inn, and they would actually hang out there together. There are even pictures on display of the three of them outside the inn after uh, a camping trip that are still displayed in the hotel. And many of these, uh, you know, sort of notable characters were people that Seeley had met during his newspaper days. And one of the most well-known long-term guests, and also the topic of a past history podcast, was F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he stayed for months at a time in the mid-30s. At first, this was for the sake of his own health, and then later it was to be near Zelda, who was hospitalized for mental illness at Highland Hospital in Asheville. And that's where she later tragically died in a fire. Uh, more recently, President Barack and First Lady Michelle Obama have visited, and the golf clubs and basketball that he played with while he was there are on display. We were just kind of funny. Yeah, we, we were giggling over uh, that because we kept finding the displays that were like, and then when President Barack Obama was here, here are the golf clubs that he played with. Here is the basketball that he played with. There are many things that many famous people uh, 
had with them or, or whatever yeah. that are around the hotel. Um, that's so recent, I think. That's it's probably why it's funny. It was very funny to me. Um, there, there are walls of pictures of all kinds of notable figures, including many past presidents of uh, many political affiliations. So it is not just... No, uh, it's the, the recentness that makes it funny. So funny to me. It would be like if you left the studio and I took a piece of paper you had written a note on, and I was like, here, Tracy Wilson <laughs> wrote a note. Except I'm not president. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, to wrap up, tell us the ghost the story. The ghost story. So, yes, uh, all good old inns have a ghost story. And the one at the Grove Park is the Pink Lady. The story goes that the pink lady is a woman who fell to her death from one of the upper floors of the palm court. So the palm court is sort of the central room area of the historic inn. It's built like an atrium. And so the rooms are around the side and there's a long drop down into the bottom if you're on one of the upper floors. So allegedly sometime during the 1920s, a woman fell from one of these upper floors and died, although we're not really sure who this might have been. Uh, now she is said to haunt room 545, although in a very friendly way. Everyone describes her as a, you know, a benevolent ghost who is playful and likes children. Not in a uh, creepy way. Unlike the previous eras of the inn where they ask guests to not bring your children. <laughs> not bring your kids. She's okay with it. Now it is fine to bring children to the Grove Park. There are no signs everywhere about how you had better not be a sick person if you were coming to stay there. Um, the, the whole... Now it's definitely, you know, a nice place for people and families to come and take a visit uh, with lots of gracious people. I'm not trying to sound like an ad for them, but I I felt that to be true while I worked there. And I felt that to be true recently when I got to stay there. I wonder if uh, many, many people request room 545. Well, they don't really announce. (laughs) This is the haunted room. (laughs) You can find that on the Internet, though. The, a lot of the rooms in the historic main inn have little uh, labels on them of like the famous historical person that stayed in that room, especially if the person stayed there for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the room that we got to stay in was just down the hall from the suites of the suite of rooms that F. Scott Fitzgerald stayed in, which was kind of I found that to be kind of cool. Yeah, we pretty much the whole time we were there when we were not eating food. Uh, we were wandering around the hotel looking at all of these historical things because even though I worked there for two years, I didn't get to, you know, walk around and look at historical That's displays. That's often the case of employees <laughs> at really cool places never get to appreciate those places because yeah, they don't have time. I was underground. So um, if you are interested in all of this, uh, there is a book by Bruce Johnson called Built for the Ages, A History of the Grove Park Inn that includes just pages and pages of historical photographs, the whole thing being built. Um, all kinds of interesting facts about the history of the hotel that we did not go into here. It's it's basically from start to finish, the whole thing. Lovely, lovely black and white pictures of people in their, you know, 20s attire hanging out at the Grove Park. So, yes, that is the Grove Park. If I were an extremely rich person... You would go there frequently. I would, but I am not. And so... (laughs) go there. I go there on the generosity of other people... Uh, I did get to stay there when I was working there one time because I, uh, I, I won a stay at the holiday party. That was a big deal. Okay, so I have some listener mail. Hooray! Will you share it? I will. This is from Gregory. Gregory says, Holly and Tracy, hi, I'm a big fan of your podcast. You both make my commute to and from work much more bearable. Thank you, Gregory. Yay. Uh, actually, he says Greg at the bottom, so I should call him Greg. 
I also listen to your show while riding around with my four-year-old son, Thor. We were rec- recently listening to your episode about the Flannan Isle Lighthouse disappearance, and he has been talking about it ever since. <laughs> we talk about it all of the time, and he keeps coming up with his own theories about what happened to the three workers. Here are a few that he asked me to submit for your consideration. The workers met some mermaids and went to live with them. I think that sounds fun. A sea monster. Remember that breathing problem? <laughs> sounds like a great way to go. We'll just get the sea witch to take care of that for us in exchange for something that makes us crucially individual with other people. Oh, I was thinking of the Futurama solution, which is not delightful but seemed to work. Oh, we could uh, we could have gillyweed from Harry Potter. Yeah, there are options. So uh, back <laughs> to Greg's letter. <laughs> uh, the next choice was less delightful. A sea monster ate them. Well, yeah. Yeah. And then the, the next one is a mummy took them. Huh. Seafaring mummies, not so well known, but right. I'm not willing to rule it out. Well, if, if they had proper, you know, desiccant on board, they could probably <laughs> deal with that. Uh, and then my personal favorite, someone dressed up as a mummy or a werewolf or a sea monster and kidnapped them. And then he has in parentheses, Thor is also a fan of Scooby-Doo. Thanks for making a great show and for giving my son and I something to talk about. Greg, this is seriously one of the most delightful. <laughs> so sweet. I love it. Thank you, Thor, for having these wonderful ideas yeah. about the Planet Isle Lighthouse. And thank you, Greg, for sharing them with us. That's how history's mysteries are solved. It's first know. by brainstorming possibilities and then seeing how they could have played out. Well, and I love the idea of, uh, of, of parents and, and kids talking about whatever they've been listening to or watching. Like, yeah. I, I remember when I was a kid, my mom and I would go to the movies. One of my favorite things was after the movie, talking to my mom about the movie. We would do that on the way home. It was just me and my mom. For some reason, my brother, I guess, would be camping with my dad or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember my brother being present during this talk. During the movie discussion. I did have one. I do have one. <laughs> my brother is in the present tense. <laughs> I should thank him again. For your for contributing to your stay at the Grove Park Inn. Helping make it uh, feasible for us to spend a night there. So, Okay. If you would like to write to us, there are so many ways you can do so. We are at historypodcastatdiscovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. And after we are done here, I'm going to go pin a bunch of Grove Park Inn stuff on Pinterest. Woo! If you would like to learn a little more of the kookier side of what we talked about today, go to our website and put the word Asheville in the search bar, you will find an article called How the Five-Day Weekend Works, which, if you know anything about Asheville, it is not surprising at all that that idea originated there. You can learn a whole lot more about that and many, many other subjects at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.